Our gospel portion for this Sunday is from the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 21, starting at verse 23. And this is a tradition. Please stand. It's a tradition that when you stand in the presence of a king, particularly if one is speaking to us. Brothers and sisters, the good news according to Matthew. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it amongst themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, and neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and he said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. And then the father went to another son and said this, asked the same thing. He answered, I will stir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. And Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. It's always um, one of those tensions that we... Sorry? Oh, that's right. Children. Are there any children present? There are a few. If you would like to escape the wrath to come and the 66-minute sermon that I was about to descend on these poor people, uh, you can go uh, into the vestry and just outside. Roger will... Um, be delighted to give you a lesson, play some games, share the festival with you. If anybody would like to identify as a small child, <laughs> okay, uh, you may also. I mean, I'm the one standing up here with a lemon, okay? <laughs> let's, uh, let's bless our kids. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of family, the blessing of children, and we know and acknowledge that you love them even more than we do. 
So please, Lord, guard them with your angels, fill them with your spirit, and raise them up to be mighty men and women of God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, it's always the tension in, uh, uh, on a holiday. Uh, what do you preach? Do you preach the holiday, Sukkot, or do you preach the text, which is appointed for the day? So, uh, as is our tradition here at Christchurch, we do both. That's the good Jewish answer. So, let's start with the holiday. As you all know what it is, that's why you're here, one assumes. This is the seventh and last of the biblical festivals that we find in the calendar of God. God has given us a calendar. Time is incredibly important to the Lord. What is the first thing that God creates holy in the Bible? Right, the Sabbath, time. And God starts a, a rhythm, and He gives His creation a rhythm, uh, not just an agrarian society of festivals for harvests, yes, but also a prayer life, a rhythm of reading the Bible, a rhythm of gathering before the Lord. It's incredibly important and valuable. We live in a community that has thrown rhythm out. Now it's just 24-7. And, uh, and, and, it's, and it causes stress on people. We don't even know sometimes which day of the week it is. Now, we read of this festival in Leviticus 23 and in Deuteronomy 16. Leviticus 23, we're instructed uh, to build little booths, go live in them, and then gather some, some uh, plants. I'll describe that in a minute. But Leviticus, best book of the Bible, by the way, says that this festival is just for Israelites. Now Moses, in Deuteronomy 16, expanded that to include Gentiles. You see, Moses, the, the, the book of Deuteronomy is a fantastic text. It, uh, Moses has got his people uh, in, in the plains of Moab. They're about to descend on Canaan and, and, and go settle the land. And Moses has one more shot to try and, and, and encourage the, the, the people of Israel to set up a just, uh, a righteous, uh, a, a, a holy society that is meant to be a light to the nations. So, of course, that means the nations are going to come. So you find in Deuteronomy, Moses is constantly saying, yes, Israel, you have to do this. Oh, and also for the Gentiles that come, you make sure that they do this too. And uh, that is something so... You've come, have you not? In fulfillment of what Moses has said, interestingly. Welcome. And then, so it goes from being an a, uh, Israelite festival to a more universal festival, and later on in the prophet Zechariah, it becomes a prophetic festival. Now, for some reason, and I'm not going to pretend I know all the answers, but because God thinks time's important, we continue to do this in the new world. Uh, e even at Passover, Jesus gets his disciples and he says, I'm not going to drink the fruit of the vine until, like I'm not going to do Passover again, until it finds its fulfillment in the world to come. We'll be doing Passover together. We'll be doing Sukkot together. Now, either God just really likes camping or there's some sort of special meaning for this. What you find in the text is that God says, do this 
that then doesn't give you lots of inspiration or meaning. That comes with something called tradition. Now, some of you might not like tradition. That tradition might not be your shtick. Uh, that's okay. But you happen to be in a church that embraces tradition, and the Jewish people do too. Jesus does. He also does. At Passover, Jesus drinks wine. Nowhere in the Bible was there wine at Passover in Exodus. Now, Jesus doesn't pick up a cup of wine and go, you see this? This ain't in the Bible. What he does is he gives it meaning. So we're going to explore some of the, the meaning. Now, this is a festival of joy. It's one of the very few times that God takes command of your emotions. Usually, he allows you to have your emotions. He often wants you to share your emotions with other people. Laugh when others laugh. Cry when others cry. But this time, he says, now wait, you get to come to me, and I want you to be happy. I want us to have a joyful time. It's not always easy. But we, it's, uh, one of the things that we also realize in the Bible is we all do this together. Discipleship. When you read the New Testament, it's always in the plural. You get together as a family, and we worship and celebrate together. Now, this season of joy, this season of, uh, of gift-giving and generosity is completely countercultural. It's a challenge to be generous in our day and age with all these high taxes and failing economies, and God says, come be happy and also be generous. But this season isn't all by itself. It's connected to all the other fall festivals, which started on, uh, on Yom Teruah, or what we call today Rosh Hashanah, where we blew the shofar over a hundred times, and we were, we were told to wake up and uh, ignore the voices that are coming from our culture and get ready to be with God. Repent and ask forgiveness. And then you had 10 days where we would run around and, 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 and seek to make right with each other. Being forgiven and asking for forgiveness, both of those are sometimes very hard to do. And then you would have Yom Kippur, uh, where you got right with God. And at the end of that, who wouldn't want to be happy? So you finish a season of repentance, a season of forgiveness, in joy and in fellowship. Traditionally, at this time, you also read uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. Every festival, there's always a special book that you read. So uh, why do Jewish people read Ecclesiastes at a time of joy? I hear you ask. Good question. So uh, I study uh, with uh, little groups of, uh, small group of rabbis twice a week. And every year I ask, why are we reading Kohelet? Why are we reading Ecclesiastes at this time? And the answer that they always give is balance. Mm -hmm. yeah, come on, Aaron, you can't be too happy. Said, oh, watch me. <laughs> this, uh, a, but we, so, so I decided that um, we would read today uh, Psalm 72, one of the two Psalms of Solomon. So Solomon obviously wrote uh, Ecclesiastes and uh, Song of Songs and some of the Proverbs, but he doesn't get much else in, uh, in the text. He only gets two Psalms, both of them, or 127 is incredibly short. We said that in our Psalms of Ascent, and uh, the one we said today, 
where it's a declaration of kingship and blessing for people. Uh, why, is, why is Solomon, uh, why doesn't he get a lot of written material? Um, if you had the Jewish prayer book, you would find that there's not one prayer of Solomon in it. Why? Because of uh, how he ended his career. Right? He started out as the smartest man on the planet. And then he had a thousand women. So he ain't that smart. Okay? Or something. But the smartest man on the planet went into idolatry. That should be humbling for all of us. And one of the gods that he worshipped was Molech. Ooh, yeah. Now, what do you do to Molech? How do you worship him? You burn children. And so, in the, in the, in the Jewish tradition, they said, listen, we can't, we can't use Solomon as an as a, as a inspiration for our prayers. He's got some, one psalm of kingship. It's beautiful. And he has one very short psalm of ascent. That, that's what we'll keep. And, uh, but but they're, they're trying to learn something from our, from our friend. But we got the chance to, to bless each other with, with Psalm 72. Great psalm. This is a pilgrim festival, as you know. It's one of the uh, commandments where we all have to show up in front of the Lord and, uh, and speak and fellowship. And then Leviticus also tells us that we should gather, this is our little visual aid, gather uh, plants for some reason. And you get your palm frond, your lulav, okay? And you get your myrtle, and then, or, and then you get your willow, and, um, and an etrog, a citrus. And you deliberately hold these three together in one hand, and, and you keep your etrog separate. Nowhere in the Bible does it give you any reason for these. It just says, take them. Okay. Now what do I do with them? I hear you ask. Well, uh, when I went to go buy mine, I, I, I went to the shop and I asked, uh, can I please have uh, the four species? I was expecting him just to go, here you go. But instead, what you do is you spend the next 45 minutes staring at these things. Okay, and I'm, and I'm looking intently at this thing. I'm going, I'm looking at him and I'm going, what are you looking for? And he says, I don't know. This is what we do. I was like, okay. <laughs> All right. Yep, looks like a lemon to me. How much? 50 shekels. Now, I don't know whether I'm being religious or stupid, okay? But you're going to help me out on that one, okay? 50 shekels for a lemon, okay. But these, these things, Jewish people have, have a, a, a tradition, thousands of years of asking the question, why these things? Well, they've noted that each of these objects has either a smell or a taste, but only one of them has both. Which one do you think has both? Etrog, right? Actually, what you're supposed to do as part of your prayer life is smell. You see, in Jewish tradition, you worship God with all of your senses. See, often in the Protestant tradition, we, uh, we prefer to worship the Lord with our hearing. We like to hear stuff, and we like to sing stuff. But in Jewish tradition, you worship God with your taste. 
Taste and see how good he is, right? Every, time, every festival of the Lord has something to do with food, except Yom Kippur, which still has something to do with food. You can't have any, okay? <laughs> but you, incense. Incense comes from the book of Exodus. It is not an invention of the Vatican, okay? And, uh, but as Protestants, we kind of threw that out with the, with the, uh, the baby with the bathwater, which is unfortunate, because you smell, and it's meant to meant to go into your soul, because actually those two words are the same, lin shom, to breathe, soul, neshama, right? It's the same, it's the same, same uh, verb. And then when it touches your soul, you're supposed to respond with praise, because prayers are like incense to the Lord, are they not? Revelation says that they are. But when God made the world, He made everything in couples, they were couplings. God made heaven and earth, night and day, male and female, good and evil. And you can't understand one without the other. If we don't have a night time, what does day really mean? And vice versa. You think about Adam on his first day when he encounters night for the very first time. Imagine how scared he must have been. What is that? Why is the light going away? Lord, come and help me. Maybe that's the reason why the Lord decided to meet him every evening. So I'm here, Adam. You're not alone. These things are also in pairs. And there is a, a taste or a smell, but not either like the, the, the willow has neither or you have uh, both. And in Jewish tradition, tradition, you have four types of disciples, right? In when Peter was given the keys of the kingdom of heaven uh, by Jesus, that's actually a very Jewish phrase. How many keys are there in the kingdom of heaven? I hear you ask. Guys are full of questions. There are two. One is the key to your inner court, and one is the key to your outer court. The key to your inner court is your, what we would call faith, right? I have faith in God. That's, that's my heart loves the Lord. But if I don't do anything about it, what does it profit me? Nothing. And if I'm a good guy, if I've got good deeds, I give 50% of my money to the poor, and I, you know, I only vote, I don't know, I'm a monarchist, so I don't like voting, uh, a Democrat, Republican, whatever, okay? But is that going to help me if I don't love God? Not at all. You have to have both. Like they're, made, they're made together. And so in Jewish tradition, there are four types of disciples. There's the disciple who is really quick to learn the Word of God, but he's very quick to forget. So what he learns profits him nothing. And there's a disciple who's really slow to learn. It takes him quite a while, but he forgets everything so fast. It's just... Out the year, out the other. There's a disciple who's really quick to learn, uh, slow to learn and slow to forget. The, the best disciple is the disciple who's quick to learn and slow to forget. And this is what this etrog is to remind you of. When you gather with the Lord, and this is the way you pray. Okay, you're supposed to wake up in the morning and use these things as part of your prayer. Uh, what you do is you hold them together. You start by putting them close to your chest, your heart. And then you thrust them out to the world. 
you say, this is the type of disciple I'm going to be to the world. And you do it for all directions. It's a very simple prayer. Okay? Prayer in Judaism is actually very short. Okay? There's no need to do long prayers. Um, God knows exactly what we want. But this is the challenge for us today. Which type of disciple are you going to be? You're going to be this guy? Or are we going to just be one of these? So, how does this all connect with our gospel passage, I hear you ask? Well, I thought it did quite well, actually. It was in our gospel portion. We might notice that uh, it's another pilgrim festival. It's Passover. Jesus has done the triumphal entry. There is absolute messianic hype. People are excited, just like in Jerusalem today. Christians have come from all over the world. Jewish people have come from all over the world. They're excited. There's a hype, a buzz. There's something tangible in the air. And uh, Jesus has walked into the temple. It's a special place for him. If Jesus loved the temple, what should be our response? We should love it too. Jesus has already done the, the bullwhip Indiana Jones thing. And they challenge him, what are you doing? And he says, my house is a house of prayer. In Jewish tradition, when you read the Bible, you're also looking for the words that are not there. They're just as important. So what word did Jesus not say about the temple? What goes on in the temple? Sacrifices. Jesus didn't say, this is a house of sacrifice. He said, this is a house of prayer. Because remember, the Jewish people had lost the temple. They had built it, then it had gone. It was destroyed and they were carted into Babylon. They had a serious, hard rethink about their theology. And you know what they concluded? You can still be a believer in, Jesus, in God. And you can still pray. Because notice, in the book of Daniel, Daniel is met by angels, he has visions, he is given prophecies of the future, but no angel says, I'm going to give you a prophecy of the future, Daniel, please write it down, but listen, you can't make sacrifices, so basically you're toast, we'll see you in hell. That's not what they say. And so they had already figured out, they had reread the Bible with new fresh eyes, and they discovered in the book of Leviticus that every single sacrifice, except for Yom Kippur, was for unintentional sin. That's what it actually says. When you sin unintentionally, do this. So for example, I can't come and steal your car, drive to a lat, and then you catch me, and then I go, well, I'm just going to go sacrifice this goat, and we will be okay. What do I have to do? I have to give a car back. What else do I have to do? I've got to add money, extra. I've got to pay for it, and if I can't, I become her her slave, her indebted servant, until I can pay off my debt. So just killing an animal doesn't make anything. You still have to repent and make restitution. Jesus knew that. This is a, supposed to be a house of prayer. And so with all of this expectation, with all of this messianic hype, with him having um, um, driven out the money changers, and he's teaching boldly in the temple, he's challenged by the leadership. They come and they ask, you know, by what authority do you do this? And uh, Jesus is, is the, uh, the master storyteller. 
And in a very typical uh, Jewish fashion, when you are asked a question, you answer with a question. So, I'll tell you by whose authority I'm doing this stuff, but you answer a question for me first. And he's incredibly clever. John the Baptist, where'd he come from? Now, if they say that he's from heaven, what does that make John? Makes him a prophet. We haven't had one of those for 400 years. Who comes after the prophet? Messiah. So if John the Baptist is a prophet, who's Jesus? Right? Now, people have already figured this out. Right? So uh, when in John chapter 1, John the Baptist actually sees Jesus and says, Behold, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Immediately, Andrew goes and finds Peter, Simon, back then he was his name, and says, We've found the Messiah. Jesus hasn't done one thing yet. He hasn't preached a sermon, hasn't cast out a demon, hasn't gathered disciples. But already, he's the Messiah. Martha, in John chapter 11, when uh, Jesus says, Uh... Uh, I'm the resurrection. I know you're the Christ, she says. I know you're the Messiah. So I can just imagine when Peter finally did it at Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus says, who do people say I am? You're the Messiah. And Jesus could have said something like, man, you could have asked the girls. They knew this that long time ago. Okay. Oh, I'm glad you're here now, buddy. That's great. Here, have some keys. Okay. Um, the, they, don't, they can't answer because they don't want to be confronted with the, with, with the conclusion. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised one of, the, of, the, of, of Israel. He has fulfilled the prophet Malachi by appearing in the temple. That's what Malachi says. So then he goes and he, and he challenges the leadership, and he challenges us. And I think this is where... The, the holiday and the gospel passage really, really connect. He challenges with a parable. It's unique to Matthew. Two sons. Father asks exactly the same question to both of them. Go work in my vineyard. And what does the first one say? I won't do it. Now, in, in, in the parables of Jesus, parables are a unique teaching device. Parables only occur in the Gospels and in rabbinic literature. There are no parables in the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament. There's no parables in Paul. There's no parables in the church fathers. Nobody else knows how to do them. They are unique to the time of Jesus. And parables also have no ethnicity. It doesn't say it was a Jewish man. They're not Jewish sons. They're certainly not Jewish questions. Right? This is the universal. Just like Moses is you know, throwing the faith out there. If Israel is to be a, a light to the Gentiles, a light to the nations, expect the nations to arrive and to hear the truth. So this question is for everybody. And the parables always contain a shock. There has to be something that, that, that goes, wait a second, what? Like the, the parable of the talents where where uh, a, a, a king gives 10,000 talents to a slave, which in today's value is $2.5 billion. So the shock is, 
what kind of crazy king is giving a servant that much money? And how could the servant blow it all? I mean, you could have bought all of Israel, okay? How did he do it? It's a shock. So it's a shock. A son refuses the order of a father? I mean, this, you should give the kid a smack in the, in the ancient world, maybe even worse. I won't do it. But then he did. Had a change of heart. He repented. And he did what his father asked him to do. But the other son paid lip service. Yeah, I'll do that. And they did nothing about it. Two different types of disciples. Both heard the voice of their father and the command to obey. But only one obeyed. So obedience and, and confession, saying that Jesus is Lord, they are important. They're both important. But if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is king, guess what you do to kings? You obey them. Finish this sentence for me. Hebrews 5 verse 9. Jesus has become the source of eternal salvation to all who? Most of us said believe, yeah? It's obey. Okay, that's what the actual text says. We have to be the son who obeys. We have to have both faith and deeds. This is our challenge during Sukkot. As we have come here in the presence of God at the call of the Lord to be with him and to be with his family, then take that challenge afresh because we're going to take the joy of this season and we're going to take it back to the nations that you all came from, to the communities that you all came from. And you can't keep silent. You have to share the faith. You have to share the love. You have to Jesus says, go into all the world, baptize them, and teach them to obey. So let's be this type of disciple. Let's be the disciple who will go and work in his father's vineyard. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are so few. So pray to the Lord of the harvest to send some more workers. And that is you. You are invited to this challenge today. If you're not ready, if you want to rededicate your life, you come and see us during the communion and we'll pray for you and we'll bless you. We'll anoint you with some oil. But don't leave Jerusalem without uh, wanting to share the faith. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.